0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Karsten-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like my conversation with Alan last week, where we discussed what causes trends and how trend following may handle a soft, hard, or even no-landing, and why we may still be at the beginning of a commodity super cycle. I would also encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Harry spoke to Michael Garrett about his approach to the markets based on indicators like the lumber to gold ratio. But it also turned out to be a very raw account of what has been like for him uh, going through 2022, which he describes as hell. And I'm sure he's not the only investor who feels this way. And if I can plug next week's episode on Wednesday with Annie Duke, this is an amazing episode, particularly if you like systematic investing strategies, as there are so many lessons from her new book, Quit, um, that we can use in our world. So head out, uh, head over and check out these uh, episodes uh, when you have done listening to Rich and I today. Anyway, Rich, great to be back with you as always. How are you doing? How are things
1: down under? Really good, news. It is slowly getting warmer here, but we've had a sort of extended winter. But, um, yep, it's starting to pick up over here, so it's getting more and more humid as time progresses. But all good. Um, keeping my eyes out on what's happening over in Ukraine. Um, I'm a bit nervous about uh, what what Russia's plans are. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, still an uncertain environment, and um, the, the trends are, are doing very well at the moment. Yeah, definitely, and we'll get back to that in a second.
0: Now, in terms of a uh, market wrap for this week, um, there's no doubt that the headline is higher rates for longer. Uh, That was the concise message out of the Federal Reserve this week. After an attempt at rallying on Monday, both stocks and bond prices rose with quarterly rebalancing and short covering. Uh, Markets again were overwhelmed by the Fed's message by the end of this week. Now, the week started out pretty strong for the S&P 500, up about 5.5% at the end of Tuesday. And the yield to maturity on the two-year Treasury notes finished uh, at a low point around 17 basis points lower at 409 uh, in terms of interest rate. Now, these rallies were mainly driven uh, in part by the third attempt essentially at the narrative that hopes that the U.S. Central Bank is on the cusp of slowing the pace of rate hikes, even now with the U.N. weighing in this week to put pressure on Powell and Company but maybe not so fast as all the Fed members are on the same page and advertise the same resolute message, namely higher rates and higher rates for longer to squash inflation. By close of Business Friday, the S&P was still positive for the week, although Friday's ferocious sell-off, erased about 3%, and the two-year note was back to its quarter in high of 4.3%. Now, the catalyst was many, but US nonfarm payroll data released on Friday morning will get the most attention for sure. Um, payroll employment figures came in slightly above expectations and the labor force contracted at touch. The result was that the unemployment rate was 3.5% for the month, an improvement from 3.7% reported in August. And although employment gains have slowed from the blistering pace of 2021 and early 2022, a number of 263,000 payroll um, is still way above trend growth. So we conclude that despite the tightening of financial conditions since the beginning of 2022, employment remains firm. Now, for bond investors, this year has been the worst drawdown so far in a broad fixed income market for uh, on record. And at the end of September, the aggregate index now is down 15%. Now, perhaps there is more to come of that because the Reserve Bank credit dipped by a healthy 45 billion dollars uh, from seven days ago, leaving the Fed's holding of interest-bearing assets at $8.73 trillion. Now that's down 100, $190 billion since late March, where it peaked. Uh, so $45 billion in a week is not bad. All eyes next week will be focused on inflation and retail sales data, as well as the first of the third quarter earnings that are being released. So the question is, of course, has the financial tightening been enough? Or will the Fed need to use both feet on the brakes? Only time will tell. Anyway, Rich, um, since you were last on, what's sort of been your focus either in terms of market moves, um, maybe in terms of some of the performance that we've seen coming through the um, the grapevine and, um, of course, the battleship. I hope it's uh,
1: cruising along well. <laughs> it certainly is. So... Um, Yeah, so so September was a a great month uh, for the battleship. we managed to pay some um, very good um, gains in that month, um, notably because um, my portfolio is focused more towards currencies than and, and has less exposure in bonds. Uh, the things that were standouts for me was um, this continuing trend in the the yen pairs, such as the USD um, Japanese yen and the Swiss yen uh, pairs. Um, the euro USD, of course, uh, got a nice kick with the um, collapse in the pound. Um, Uh, with my currency. So um, yeah, it's a a magnificent time. Um, You know, at the commencement of this month, which we've only had about eight or so days of, um, you know, I I did get a bit of volatility there. But fortunately, because of my loose pants models, um, they weren't thrown out of the trends. And we've found that they've reverted back now, back into those trends that have been, uh, you know, pre-existing for quite a few years now for many of them. So everything is still going along as per normal. And um, you know, I, I just notice how um, a lot of the um, trend-following programs are posting some of their um, their record periods uh, year-to-date, um, I think, historically. Um, so, uh, you know, I've got a number of um, large trend-following funds posting magnificent returns uh, for this calendar year, uh, which is really an extension of the last two to three years. Um, we've had this magnificent trending regime, and it's particularly pronounced this year. Um, and... Um, uh, I don't know how long this is going to... None of us know how long this is going to continue, but we certainly um, make hay while the sun shines, as they say.
0: It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, there's obviously been a lot of talk about whether these simple strategies still work or have market structure changed? Are markets moving more quickly now because information is disseminated so quickly and everyone has access to it and, and, and so on and so forth? So in... In that sense I actually find it quite interesting to see that we are witnessing perhaps the strongest trend following year maybe even on record but certainly among the top 3 I would say probably throughout trend following history more or less um top 5 top 3 doesn't really matter but certainly up there um so um so what does that tell you in a sense, if you think about the fact that, okay, from the seventies to the eighties to the nineties, so much has changed in the past twenty years. It it is so different, really, compared to back then. Yet, performance is uh, obviously uh, as good as, or maybe even better, than what we saw back then.
1: Um, it's, what it's, does it's, that tell you? Well, it's very interesting to me because I noticed that. Those trend-following programs with a very long-term track record, they haven't necessarily adjusted their strategies significantly over that 30-year period, but now we are witnessing this explosive growth. So it's telling me that, um, you know, it's almost saying to me place less, less sort of importance on the backtest or what history is presented. Provided your models provide this upside and your cut losses short, you will enter regimes we've never seen before, which um, can certainly, you know, produce a bonanza in these days. You know, like a you 've got to um, praise these trend following programs that have had the persistence and the patience over twenty five thirty years of not tampering with their models and uh, you see the benefit um, of this you know maybe thirty years down the track of not tampering with their models um, where they suddenly achieve the best returns they've ever achieved in in historical terms so it's it's very impressive to me and it just shows how Robust the method is, how um, despite the desire to want to change things, you know, you might think that markets are changing. um, You know, I think there are these golden rules that you need to stick with and be very patient with over the very long term period. And it's the market that delivers your bounty, Um, it's not your finesse in. in, you know, um, changing your system rules or or the intricacies of system development—it's more the patience and persistence to wait until the market decides um, when to deliver its bounty.
0: The other thing that I think is interesting, because as you mentioned, there are many firms doing really well this year, um, but we're not—we're not the same. We're all a little bit different. We trade different number of markets. We trade different markets. We, some people, um, don't change the position size. Some people do change the position size. All of the things we've talked about, uh, on the podcast that makes us different. Yet, as we can see, it is a pretty broad based rally. Let's call it that, uh, in terms of performance of these strategies. And, um, to me that goes to this term that you mentioned there and that we talked about a lot, but it is kind of elusive a little bit and that is this robustness, meaning that we can, as long as we stick to the golden sort of rules of trend following, whether we do it a little bit this way or whether we do it a little bit that way, it doesn't actually spoil um, the, uh, the, the strategy and its ability to continue to adapt, and, and and really more importantly, in, in, in my view, to continue to navigate an environment that it has not seen before. I think that's the critical part, um, because I do believe that a lot of strategies kind of rely on things repeating themselves. But in our case, it's really not the case, so to speak. It's really about um, completely new, um, I mean, just like we saw oil go negative, never seen that before. Uh, but no CTAs blew up because of that. Um, and 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 all of these completely crazy things we've seen in the markets, yet we're all still here for the most part and, 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 and doing well. And as you rightly said, many of these uh, firms and strategies have been around for 30, 40, even 50 years. Um, I think that is impressive. And I've never quite understood why that is not being appreciated more Um,
1: by the people looking uh, from the outside in. Mm. No, definitely. And, yeah, it's always surprising to me that, um, you know, um, I I believe that trend followers um, take opportunity under uncertainty. And, uh, you know, this is unlike other methods that are, relying on predictive stability, um, I think our methods blossom under uncertainty. And it's exactly because we haven't seen these environments before and um, our models tend to capitalise on these opportunities. So if, if we imagine this market is a zero-sum game those um, those traders that are uh, working on the premise that history repeats or history um, the patterns repeat when their models break down I think this is where there's a mass shift um, in transference of wealth to those models that capitalize on the opposite side of the spectrum which is capitalise on uncertainty as opposed to predictability so um, you know as as we go through these different regimes I think uh, there are certain models that do well under predictive certainty and then there are certain models that do well under uncertainty. And
0: and and of course, that is true. I mean, it is true that that trend following has done well during uncertain times. But I always want to stress is that we don't need uncertainty per se. I mean, we've done perfectly well during times where things were more stable. And I mean, stable in the sense, not the prices don't move, but stable in the sense that we don't have a war in our backyard, or we don't have, you know, inflation at 10%. And and, and all of that stuff. And um, and this is what still fascinates me, even after all these decades of doing it. It fascinates me that you can have a strategy that actually is able to handle you probably both environments pretty well. But of course, we know that the transition period is always going to be somewhat painful um, because markets change direction, and therefore we have to uh, adapt our positions accordingly. Anyway, I'm sure we'll come back to it, but it's just still... Yeah, it's fascinating. Anyways, this week, um, I think that most trend followers had a pretty soft start to Q4. There were some short-lived corrections in the markets. And and as I mentioned earlier, this was driven to some extent um, by the UN suddenly weighing in on the what the Federal Reserve should do with its monetary policy, which strikes me as being somewhat out of order, uh, that a, an organization like that should um, kind of Put pressure on a central bank um, and question their independence and to that extent. Having said that, after a couple of days, the focus shifted to some extent um, because we started looking at some of the challenges that we are still facing, not least the high energy prices. And that came in the wake of the OPEC Plus making this very blunt statement saying that uh, energy security comes at a cost. Uh, And this was in the wake of them announcing that they're going to cut 2 million barrels uh, uh, per day of production, which is, um, it's a very interesting time to do this on. And I'm sure there'll be um, plenty to talk about um, going forward with that. But it could actually, from a trend following point of view, um, put a little bit of a flaw on the energy prices, which have been under pressure for the last uh, four months, maybe five months since early March, really, um, when they peaked. Um, so this will be um, quite interesting to follow. You and I were talking off air before we press record a little bit about energies is an interesting sector right now because are trend follows short? Are they long? Are they kind of neutral? Mm, hard to tell, uh, depending on what kind of uh, methodology and time frame they are they're, uh, they're um, uh, applying, uh, of course. Um, but if you are longer term, I th- think you would probably still be long and then this week would have been uh, very productive from a from a performance point of view in the energy uh, markets. Fixed income, of course, our friend uh, that keeps uh, paying dividends, so to speak, uh, did well this week, I imagine. Uh, currencies, maybe even grains, uh, contributed positively. Not so sure about middle, soft, and equities. Uh, again, a little bit depending on time frame and look back and all of that. My own trend barometer uh, finished the week at forty-eight, so it's you know a little bit uh, towards the higher end of neutral. So could go either way performance for the week so far and for the month so far and for the quarter so far um, for the indices we follow this is as of Thursday Friday was definitely a positive day for for trend followers um, but mm, not sure it, it it makes it all the way to um, to a positive territory but the beta 50 index was down 46 basis points as of Thursday up 18.88 for the um, for the year. Sock Trend Index, the CTA Index, sorry, down 73 basis points, up 25.19. Sock Trend Index down 1.46% for the month, up 336 for the year. And the Sock short Short-Term Traders Index down 53 basis points, up 124 for the year. Comparing that with the MSCI World, which actually did finish the week positive, um, up 1.64%, but down 2519 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, another... Losing months again, uh, down 49 basis points so far in October. We have one question, um, which is not going to take that long to answer. Um, So let's do that first. And then we have some quite interesting topics Uh, about trend following, uh, funnily enough, um, that we want to dive into, but maybe from a slightly different perspective than what we normally uh, talk about. Um, So let me just read the question um, and then you can uh, give your view, uh, Rich. So this is from Josh. Josh writes in, question for you and your guest. When opening a trend following position, and here I'm talking about equity and long and fractional in my small retail Robinhood account, and I calculate a 14 or 15-day average true range based on uh, uh, as a stop loss, say two ATRs. Do you enter the stop um, and have it fire intraday? Or do you keep the stop loss price as a mental price and take it based on the close? Um, or do you just watch it all day?
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, good question from Josh. Um Look, the first thing I'd just like to say is that when uh, we're talking about trend following and we're talking about the returns delivered by trend following, um, you know, we talk about these um, significant outliers that we target. Now, because of the magnitude of these outliers, um, it means that um, the, the materiality of things like entry and uh, the things like when we uh, stop out of our position really is quite immaterial um, over the long term with our statistics. So the benefit of, of, Trading sort of the medium to long-term time frames is that um, the, the impact of trading costs associated with the finesse of um, how we enter, how we exit, etc., cetera, um, is, is far less material than if we were trading more aggressive strategies that were, say, trading intraday, where suddenly things such as trading costs, when we enter, all of these things become exceedingly important because the costs of those trading decisions are material to your PL. But in relation to the materiality to my my PNL. The, the questions that uh, Josh proposes are quite immaterial, really. But the way I do it is that um, um, I, I um, use algorithms that um, uh, ba- base their calculations thirty minutes after the um, open of a market. So um, I'm not actually um, doing my calculations on in, on the open or at the close of the market. I'm waiting thirty minutes. Um, I do this for all of my systems, just for, to wait until. Um, um, the, the frenetic activity of the open um, starts dissipating a bit, and then um, my algorithms execute 30 minutes after the open. And at that point in time, they do a calculation. And if that calculation says enter the trade, I adopt a market order and go straight into that trade. I don't adopt stop orders or I don't adopt limit orders. One of the, the reasons I do that is I don't like brokers knowing where my um, my order entries are. Um, so um, I adopt a, a market entry position, which does occasionally give me a bit bit of slippage, but as I said before, the materiality of that is insignificant over the long term um, because of the nature of the outliers that I'm targeting through my method. So, um, yep, it's... um, on the open, oh, 30 minutes after the open, a market order for entry. And my trailing stops, however, they do um, operate at all times during the day. And once that trail is hit, I'm out of that position. And uh, that I just do that as a matter of principle because um, a lot can happen um, in the course of a day. Um, so um, I like to um, execute my exit um, as soon as that price is touched on my trailing stop, rather than, for instance, wait until uh, the end of the day or the open, Open of the next day um, to exit my position.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. Uh, you might as well leave the the um, the stop um, sitting in the market. That that seems uh, logical. Um, I've even actually heard about managers who execute their signals a, a couple of days after they they are generated because, as you rightly say, it's not so much. Um, it it, it long term trend following is not that sensitive to that i'm a little bit surprised to hear that you need and maybe i misunderstood it that you you need a little bit of data to run certain algorithms uh at the open because for a long term system you would think that one day's worth of data or half an hour's worth of data doesn't really Matter. Now,
1: w- w- what happens in my world um, with, with, um, with the, um, the markets that open, uh, according to my brokers, they don't open all at the same time. They, they open in tranches. So over the course of a half hour period, different markets are opening um, consecutively. Um, so that's why I wait until 30 minutes after the open effectively, okay. uh, because they, they sort of have a trench um, opening as yeah. opposed to all open at the same time. So, so
0: another question that just comes to to mind when when we talk about this, and that is, um, I don't, I'm not sure you and I have talked about. it. I know I've talked about it some with some of the other guys, and that is, do you think that the exit may be more important than the entry? And what I mean by that is, of course, the entry is important because we need to get in. So I'm not. This, this is not the question. What I mean by it is that whether you apply moving average, crossover, you know, uh, breakout, time series, momentum, whatever it might be, I would I would be so bold to say that I think the entry points are not going to be vastly different. Of course, they're going to be different if you're super short-term to long-term and all of that. But generally speaking, I think we can almost see a trend emerging uh, or when it starts just by looking at a chart. I mean, you can almost see it with your eyes, so um, so it, my I've always had this slight feeling that um, we all get in more or less at the same time, let's say within the same week, for example. But where we get out um, kind of can be more defining for how much of the profit, if it's a profitable trade, we can capture. And also I think that there are, Many more exit methodologies or rules that people apply, um, and therefore they are probably somewhat more different in terms of where they are in, in the markets. Is that something you? Yeah, have look. Thought I, about or
1: I hear a lot of people say the entry is not important, but in in my no, world, no, 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 no. I didn't, no, no. N- yep. I didn't say that. I didn't say that it's not important.
0: Yep. What I'm just saying is that I think that we, as an industry, are more likely to be getting in more or less at, at the, the same, same time in the same area, not the same time necessarily, more or less at the same in the same area. But I'm not so sure I could that I could say the same about where we get out. That's all.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, for, for me, um, entry is important to me because. Um, uh, for instance, if I randomly entered the market at any point in time, um, uh, you know, irrespective of when uh, trends had materialized, if I, if I did that then um, clearly I'd have a hell of a lot of, of whipsaws and um, you know be unprofitable. So clearly I'm waiting for some event, price event to occur before I even consider participating in that event. So to me, the more I delay that that entry event, the more, Material a price move has become before I enter that trend. Now, what that does to me is that therefore it pushes my entries out towards the tails of the distribution. And I think that's a good thing for me because um, I like to think that the particular area of that market distribution I'm targeting are the left and right tails. Now, no one knows where they begin or end, but we do know that um, as we we sort of wait to enter trends that become more and more material in nature, you do increase the probability that you are entering an outlier um, by restricting your trade entry to avoid what I call the the noise and mean reversion. Um, that tends to be associated with a lot of trending environments. So once you um, do wait for this extreme entry, I think this does reduce the probability landscape to have a greater chance of capturing outliers in your distribution of trade returns, so to me, that's why entry is important to me. But um, as you say, exit is very important because exit, um, the the method of exit ultimately determines um, the level of um, PL you obtain. Uh, so, uh, how profitable you are. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in trailing my stop. Um, I'm you know, um, I probably have less loose pants than some other trend followers um, in relation to um, how I do my trailing technique. But um, you know, clearly, I don't set profit targets. So, um, a profit target to me is, is not a, a correct way to validly trade a trend because um, if you set a profit target, that means that um, you have some idea or understanding of where that trend is going to end. Now, because we're targeting these outliers, which are anomalies by definition, unpredictable in nature, we need to let them run their course because no one knows how long they're going to go for. So a, a trailing method is, is the ideal technique to capitalize on this propensity for some trends to become extreme in magnitude, which means that you, you you don't lose all of your profit off the table by waiting for it to come back to your original end, um, your stop loss. Your trailing stop is continually sort of uh, progressively with, um, you know, um, beneficial price moves is ratcheting up behind your, your price. Um, but it means that um, you do give maximum freedom for those trends to uh, be of significant magnitude, but you do ultimately have to take that profit uh, once that trailing stops hit. Yeah,
0: no, I, I like that, that. That I mean, I think that makes sense that you can, to some extent, if you're really targeting outliers, you can tilt your entry rules as well to increase the probability of that. I think that that is fair because as we've talked about before, uh, you would rather make more money from the 5% or 10% of trades, maybe compared to someone who say, well, I may not make as much money on those, but I'm going to make more money on, on the, um, you know, Fifty percent uh, other profitable or forty percent other profitable trades. I'm gonna have, so I, th- I think that's fair. All right, uh, Rich, we're gonna dive into some trend identification and um, and 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 certain things we have to avoid and and so on and so forth. So it's gonna be another masterclass. I have a feeling. So uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's dive into all of this, and and I'll do my best to to keep up with you.
1: No, well, thanks, Neil. But look, we're going back to um, we're going back to the basics here. So, what we're doing is we're we're talking about um, trends, um, and we're talking about uh, visual methods of identifying trends versus. Um, Systematic rules-based methods of identifying trends. We're comparing and contrasting the different methods. So, you know, when when most people begin their trend-following journey, they they tend to be drawn to the idea that we need to be prescriptive in the way we classify trends. So, you know, you might go back to Dow theory, which says that for a valid trend, you need um, three consecutive highs and three consecutive lows, etc. Or there might be other definitions of trend. Where they're using um, moving averages to define um, what the trend is, but there is this plethora of different ways of identifying trends, but the the, the problem with Um, that plethora of methods of identifying trends is that no one has a a common understanding of what the trend is. They all um, have a personal interpretation of what they view a trend is dependent on the the interpretation they're using to identify what that trend is. So this is different to, um, uh, for instance, the diversified systematic trend followers who use more quantitative methods for trend identification. So they're using um, the data as a basis to um, give them clues as to whether there is a trending environment or not, as opposed to the visual form of a trend. So. One of the problems we face is that um, if, if, for instance, um, I went to my technical analysis class uh, where um, I, I looked at identifying trends and um, we put up on the blackboard um, all of these different um, trend configurations, everyone will be saying, well, look, that's a trend, that's a trend, no, that's a trend, no, that's one of the that's a trend, et cetera. There is this no consistency. But having a, a systematic rules-based approach means that everyone will agree um, on the If we use the same systematic rules-based approach, everyone will agree on that interpretation of a trend. Uh, it, it differs, of course, when you're applying discretionary judgment and using visual clues and the way your brain works to identify what is a trending condition. And we often find when we revisit something that previously we disregarded as a visual trend, when we come back to it, we say to ourselves, Oh, how did I how did I disregard that as a trend? Clearly, that is a trend now. So your 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 brain and its pattern recognition changes over time as well. So there, there is no stationarity to how your brain perceives. Trends—it's a—it's a moving feast of of emerging patterns that, that change over the course of time. So that is why. Um In in one of the problems, if you are very prescriptive in um, determining what is a trend, you will find that you potentially miss out on a vast array of different visual forms that also are trends, and you will find that um, you potentially miss the outlier because you are demanding some prescriptive form of visual trend um, before you entertain the prospects of trading that trend. So what we say in our quantitative world is it's better to be less prescriptive in how we define a trend and simply recognise a trend as, as a, a, a over the course of time, a directionally um, extended series of price data, as opposed to getting in all of the nitty gritty about the exact visual form that trend should take. So um, what we find, if we do get prescriptive in how we Define a trend, we can have these what we call type 2 errors. And for a trend follower, a type 2 error is perhaps the biggest sin. So um, we, of course, have lots of small losses, but they are only small losses to us. But a type 2 error is where you miss the outlier. And because those outliers are such large contributions to our P&L. If you miss one of them, that can be quite drastic for our fortunes over the long term. So um, we avoid this prescriptive tendency to classify trends according to what specific visual form it has, and we use quantitative methods um, to um, basically give a, a degree of loose pants in our definition of how we describe a trend. So the looser we define that trend, um, the better the chance we have of of capturing a, a vast array of different possible forms of trend as opposed to being prescriptive. What do you, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, no. Um, but first of all, by the way, so you talk about a type two error. Well, what's the type one error in your
1: in your book? Now, you, now you've got me. I'd have to go back to my my book, but I, I, I think okay, that, no, that's fair. Yeah. That's
0: fair. No, no, that, I didn't mean to try. It's just that I I, I hear these dif- terms being talked about a lot. And I'm not always sure what people mean by it, but that's fine. It,
1: it doesn't really matter. Um, I think no, a type, you know, a type a, one error is a is a mistake caused by um, some programmatic error. Um, a type two error is more like an opportunity cost, missing out um, on right. something. I think, but um, I don't. Yeah. To yeah. Anyways, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna try and visualize what you just described.
0: Um, we, we'll talk about this. I, I'm sure a, a little bit more. But one thing I noticed. Uh, in, uh, in in our own um, data um, is that the best-performing market uh, for us in the last five years is a market that did not make any money for um, quite a while. Uh, and I'm actually talking about short-term interest rates, okay? So here we have uh, a group of markets that... Uh, if you looked at the uh, this, the 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 price uh, from say 2000 and um, this is just ballpark, say 2018 through 2022, it's like a flat straight line because they were all pegged at zero. So there's nothing going on. But you could still, because of roll yields and so on and so forth, you could still get a signal. But then earlier this year or towards the end of last year, I can't remember exactly when, you started getting this little breakout, which looked like nothing. And and given the fact you've had like a four-year period of flatlining, you think, ah, this must be a mistake, right? You know, you're not gonna fall for that. It's like the JDB trade, like the widow trade, where every time you try to short it, you're gonna be stopped out, right? So but it just goes to show that a market that essentially had given you no opportunities for quite a while suddenly can give you uh amazing opportunities and as you rightly say it didn't look like anything like what a normal trend would look like visually because it was just a flat line and then a little blip and then suddenly it became a real trend so that was what i was thinking about when yeah. you were talking about different types of trends i mean because i think we're we i think it, our God, our gut God reaction when we think about trends is some kind of, oh, yeah, here's a, a range of a market, it's consolidating, then it breaks out and then it takes off. It's kind of, okay, that's a trend. But there are these weird, weird
1: other situations where it just looks completely different. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one, one of the problems we're facing is that um, if we're using our brains to interpret what trends are, so um, – I'm fascinated uh, with the, the, um, some of these uh, recent research findings by some of the, um, the cognitive neuroscientists like Anil Seth and um, Donald Hoffman. They're, they're very interesting. And so what they're proposing is that um, our brains are effectively these prediction engines. So if, if we could imagine um, the brain itself is encased in a skull um, so it's reliant on all of the sensory data being received by our senses so through our eyes, through our taste, through our nose, uh, through our touch, etc. These are just sensory impulses and and when I, I love sometimes thinking to myself, well what happens if we don't have any ears? So for a person who has no ears, there is no sound. Uh, and that's because um, what we are really picking up with what we refer to as sound, which we believe is out there in the environment, is just these um, you know um, pressure pressure points of molecules vibrating. That's effectively what it is. So it's the human, the human ear, that is interpreting this is sound. But ask another creature that might not have an ear how they are interpreting that same sensory um, input, and they might come up with a totally different conclusion. And so, you know, it's very vivid when I uh, think of um, the the sound, um, you know, um, if I don't have ears, I don't hear any sound. And if, you know, this is something that is uh, familiar on this planet Earth, but if we go out into um, into space, um, there is no sound out in space because there is no uh, you know um, um, molecules to vibrate in this um, you know um, in, in the the spatial arena outside of our planet Earth. Um, so in space, no one hears you scream. Um, so these are concepts that we are we are so familiar with these concepts of sound sight. Um, smell, etc. But really, they are uh, our methods of interpreting our external environment. And that external environment may be significantly different. The reality of that um, external environment may be completely different to how we are interpreting it. Because uh, effectively, as a species, as a human species, we have evolved uh, these senses to give us a, a survival edge. Um, it's given us a competitive advantage. So we hear sound because it's given us a competitive advantage. There might not actually be this concept called sound out there, but um, how um, our bodies over time have evolved and how we um, have um, adapted the sensory inputs into how we um, interpret it has given us a survival advantage. So... um, people like Anil Seth and Donald Hoffman are now recognising that um, the world in our external environment may be completely different to what we perceive as as human beings and with a brain. And uh, one thing we are certain about is a brain's ability to predict. And so uh, Anil Seth, refers to our perception of experience around us in in our environment as a controlled hallucination. In other words, um, he calls it a controlled hallucination because um, at least everybody agrees on that same hallucination. Um, So this is different to the hallucination you might... uh, you know you might receive under the you know a certain drug intakes or whatever so everyone's receiving this same controlled hallucination simply because we've all evolved and we have the same ears or similar ears the similar design features so we're interpreting things in a similar way but it could be considerably different so it's given us a competitive advantage in this natural environment but as traders trying to trade this market the the markets the financial market is something we haven't evolved in so what the brain is doing uh, might be contra or, or, or different to uh, the way we should be interpreting these financial markets. We haven't evolved in those financial markets. We don't have um, sensory apparatus that has honed in on what the financial markets are doing. So um, the brain is a pretty bad um, guide to how to trade that financial markets, which is why I always adopt to prefer a systematic rules-based approach as opposed to letting my my brain um, override um, my rules-based approach, simply because um, that brain has evolved in a different context to the financial markets which I'm trying to trade. So does that make sense? Yeah, so do
0: you think that, um, if we're going to stay with your um, analogy here, Do you think the fact that we only, or for those of us who, uh, only really need an open high low close, uh, on a daily basis in terms of price, um, is that kind of the same as not having any ears, meaning we don't hear the noise intraday. We just, oh yeah, it was this high, this low, this is where it opened. This is where it closed. That's all I need to know. I don't need all the noise
1: that took place, uh, yeah, it sort of gets worse than that, though, because you know, okay. a chart, a, a, a chart pattern is is. A visual representation. It's not actually the way the market operates. So uh, when we see how the market operates with the orders coming in and the matching of orders and then, um, you know, the transactions taking place, that is a different representation to what we visually see on a chart. We like to simplify things on a visual chart and say there was a open, there was a high, there was a low, there was a close. But that's not actually the way the market really operates. It's just our, our visual representation of that. And you can use different visual charts as opposed to the open high low close chart different visual charts um, to represent different interpretations of those transactions that are occurring in the financial markets so those people that are uh, hell-bent on using charts as the definitive guide to identify a trend they're really restricting um, their um, abilities to a degree because that's not necessarily the way the market actually works so um, I think um, quantitative methods. So in other words, one of the, the key reasons we, we use these extensive back tests is because um, we, we want to um, reduce the ability of our brains to override our decisions and ensure that we've got a systematic rules-based process that has... Um, uh, that everybody can agree on because we use the same system rules. So if I pass my system rules on to you, Niels, um, you will get exactly the same definition of trend as I'm getting because we're using the same rules-based process. Those rules-based process also have been forged over very large data samples. So it's reduced uh, uh, the fickle nature of our minds to, you know, one moment we might see a trend and when we revisit it at a later stage, we'll say that was never a trend. This sort of eliminates that that discretionary override and the way our brains work to um, a a much more systematic rules-based process that is more definitive, can be agreed on by everybody, and um, is a much more rigorous, I think, way of of validating empirically um, the nature of, of, you know, a a trend or a, a bias price series.
0: So before we move on to the next point, I, I did find my note for when we recorded with Annie Duke and there was this one quote that I uh, wanted to share with you even though it's going to come out in a few days. So this is a little sneak preview, Rich, but I think you're going to like it. And Annie says at some point, she, she, she says, the more you can systematize the decision, the better off you will be. Which of course is something that just plays so well into uh, our world. Um, uh, and of course she comes at this um, as a... Incredibly successful poker player, um, but now uh, someone who coaches people, I think, uh, about making decisions during uncertain times, which I think many um, investors and and certainly trend followers. Um, that's exactly what we've been dealing with for for many decades. So. Uh,
1: so, oh, it's yeah, very exciting. Yeah. I, I can't wait for that podcast, now. So I, I, I spent a lot of my youth in the casino. So uh, um, I do love, um, you know, looking into the details of the different games of chance and uh, looking where the edge resides and, you know, um, if there is an edge present or if there is simply a house edge present, et cetera, um, the, these, I think these uh, things I learned at the casino were quite foundational for my move into trend following um, it's it's something that one of the reasons I, I moved into trend following was that clearly I, I saw this definitive edge in trend following particularly um, in in the nature of markets to uh, be non-normal in nature and um, have these tail properties and uh, you know when, when I started seeing these tail properties of markets every every liquid market I I assessed, I saw these tail features of these liquid markets, I thought, there's my opportunity that lies outside the normal distribution. This is something I can capitalise on. And thanks to, um, you know, the, the seedy days of the casino, I think, uh, you know, it, it's taught me a lot about how to identify where an edge exists.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, she's also a wonderful storyteller. She has some amazing stories that she shares Uh, which actually helps explain – we know how important narrative is, right? But it actually makes – it's given me a couple of new ways to talk about things like stop losses and stuff like that. But I'm not going to steal her thunder, so uh, let's (laughs) wait uh, until at least next week. Um, So anyways, where
1: else? are are we going to go next with this uh, trend thing? Okay, so we've talked about um, the trends in the market data, but – There are two things that define trends, as far as my understanding. And and firstly, there needs to be a trend in the price data, which is this um, directional series of of, um, events. Um, But not only does there need to be a trend in the the market price data, but um, also our ability to capture trends is dependent on our system configuration. In other words, what I mean is that... um, to be able to e- extract that edge from the market data, we need to have systems that are capable of extracting that edge. So, um, you know, the way we uh, do this is through these very simple designs that um, limit um, the degree of price freedom um, that is allowed uh, when we we. Enter a trade. So when we enter a trade, we configure the initial stop uh, where it needs to be located. We can see we configure the trailing stop, and effectively, um, they are like system constraints. They're like uh, if you can. consider a system uh, like a container it limits the adverse price excursion the price is allowed to go before you exit that trade so that therefore um, minimizes our adverse risk exposure but uh, we don't set any profit target um, we are unbridled with our, our directional extent the, pos- the the future potential of that directional extent so we use this trailing stop mechanism and if you can imagine yes we do mitigate all adverse risk exposure with our small bet size, our trailing stop and our initial stop, but we allow for this unlimited possibility in relation to how we want um, price to move. So um, our ability to capture these trends is is both a component of the trends that exist in the market data and our system configuration. So uh, what this means is that, um, as we said before, because there are these many different various forms of visual trend, uh, we need a very loose pants definition of how we capture that um, that trending price series to give maximum degrees of freedom for for price to play out because there is a large component of random gyrations in any price series uh, but there is a much smaller component of bias in that price series that ultimately manifests in this um, momentum that exists in that trending price series to enable us to to capture this um, this trending price series so uh, effectively I just want to make it aware that um, when we do talk about trends, it is... So, you know, people say, well, um, I looked at trends in um, 2012 and 2014 where people were declaring that, um, you know, uh, trend opportunities don't exist. And when I looked at the monthly price data of all of these liquid markets in those those um, periods of time where people say trend following no longer works... I thought to myself, "Well, why is that? Well, visually, I can see these trends existing, but why, why, why aren't um, trend followers capitalising on those trends?" And what we find is that um, with these adaptive markets, over the course of times, um, you know trends do change in form, and they change in their degree of volatility. And that means that um, we, over the course of time, we do need to adapt our systems to take into account this this growing variability of trend form. So, um, you know, whilst uh, we might have developed trend-following systems back in the 1970s, the variables associated with those simply designed trend-following systems might have changed over the past. But, you know, the trends I see saw in 2012-14, in they were valid trends, but they were very difficult to trade. And this, this reason was not because trends in the market data didn't exist, they did. But our system's ability to capture that trends uh, was more difficult uh, because these trends were were much less defined, much more volatile. Um, they had a, a greater variety of different forms than what uh, we'd trained those trend-following systems on in the past. So there does need to be this degree of adaptability in our trend-following models to continuously refresh in light of new data we receive, new trend-form information that we receive. We do need to continually... Um, Include this progressive additional data so that we can retain this very loose pants um, uh, system um, design. Um, uh, You know, another, as we've talked about um, quite regularly over our podcast series, um, you know, the more prescriptive your design elements are, the more... um, So in other words, the more um, parameters and variables that you have in your system design, the more... um, the system constraints restrict the degrees of freedom of price. So what that means is that the more um, variables um, that you adapt, you are more prescriptively defining how that trend needs to perform in the future based on a um, a backtest series. So, for instance, if I decided to have tight pants, I could develop um, trend-following systems that um, mirrored they'd behaved in the past exactly. But that would restrict my degrees of freedom in relation to new opportunities, new emerging trends that we hadn't seen before. I wouldn't be able to necessarily capture those trends if I um, overly restrict my designs to um, suit what has occurred in the past. So I need this this freedom to allow um, trends to adapt, to change in nature, to have these loose pants. Okay. So let me ask you a question. We look at Essentially,
0: how different look-back periods would have performed uh, every calendar year uh, going back in time to give us an idea of whether, you know, 40-day look-back or 240-day look-back, you know, what seems to be better, let's use that word. Now, when you look at the evidence, meaning if you look at the data, there is a clear gravitation Um, that the better look-back periods are not the shorter ones. So my question to you here is, do you think, actually, from what you just said, that this is the reason why shorter-term look-back periods are just not profitable to the same degree um, as longer-term, simply for what you just said, namely that we need in lack of a better word, loser pants. We need, um, we need to allow room for many different types of trends. And if you, even with that single parameter as look-back period, if you restrict it too much, it just doesn't work as well. Is it both that complicated but also that simple?
1: Yeah. Look, I I have looked into this um, quite extensively. And and how I do that is um, um, I I research how short-term models that are configured exactly the same way, apart from the look-back, compare to my medium to long-term models. Now, what I find um, is that, All three, let's say I have short-term models, medium-term models, and long-term models, they're using a a similar ATR in their initial stop, a similar ATR in their trailing stop, and a similar multipliers, but the things that do change is simply the look-back. So what I find is that the short-term models, the medium-term models, and the long-term models, yes, they all capture outliers. There's no question about that. But what the short-term models do, um, more than the medium-term models and the long-term models, is they also catch a lot more noise and mean reversion than, um, even though they capture these outliers, they're capturing a lot more um, noise and mean reversion that compromise the p So when I look at the, um, let's say I have a short-term model, and let's say that short-term model generates 1,000 trades over a 30-year period. Then I've got a medium-term model. The only thing I've changed is my look-back and my long-term model. The medium-term model might only have 300 trades. The long-term model might only have 100 trades, simply because of the change in the look-back. But what I find is that all three have a representative inclusion of outliers in their distribution, their trade distribution. But what is much less prevalent in the medium and long-term models is this degree of noise and mean reversion, these linear sort of um inconsequential uh, wins or losses. So what I'm finding is there is more frictional drag in my short-term models that compromise my results. So what this tells me is that we always talk about how uh, we're targeting these outliers and these, these significant anomalies these, um, um, that um always are far larger than what we can predict in, um, you know, according to a normal distribution. But what I think we find is that as we step out to these medium to long-term models, what we're inevitably doing is we're playing more in the tail region of the distribution than we are in the bulk of the distribution. So when we play with our models in the bulk of the distribution, we're capturing a lot more convergence and noise than what we do when we step out to the tail regions. And I think the longer-term lookbacks naturally migrate us further out to those tower regions. Yeah. No, I mean, I
0: think that uh, makes sense. Um, Anything else in terms of the points you wanted to bring up today?
1: Um, Let's have a look. So, okay, what I'd like to do is a quite a contentious thing here and suggest that um, in reality nearly all traders or investors are actually trend followers. Now, what I mean by this is that apart from um, some um, restricted strategies like option selling, nearly everybody as a trader uh, wants a different entry price to their exit price. They're looking at a a, a difference um, in a originating price and exit price to generate their profit or potentially their loss. So they're looking for a trending price series between their entry and their exit. So you know in broadest possible terms, everyone, the, the, the gambler, the convergent trader and the divergent trader are all effectively trend followers. Because you know how I said we all tend to interpret trends differently. Well, you know, a a segment of a mean reverting um, cycle, which goes out from a a maximum favorable excursion back to an equilibrium has a trending component, and you know if you look at that at the small scale, it looks like a classic trend. And um, a lot of people that trade counter trend, are trading those those mean reverting components of of a, a bigger mean reverting cycle. Um, and you know the divergent trader is also capitalizing on trends. So what sets apart the divergent trader from the convergent trader and the gambler if they're all trading trends? Well what we are looking as divergent traders is this enduring directional persistence in that trend. So we've talked about visual trends and how difficult it is to do it. But really, the reality is that they're they're more academic topics because when we are trading on that right-hand side of the chart and making our entry, we don't know what price is going to do in the future. So we're staring into a black void We know what's occurred in the recent past because we've got this trending price series. So uh, systematic rules has identified, well, there is a a trend that has occurred, but now at my point of entry, I'm now staring into the black abyss. So what a, a, a divergent trend follower is relying on is some form of enduring persistence in that directional move at the time of entry that continues on in the same direction or a similar direction in the future. Now, that is referred to that enduring persistence, or what we often refer to as momentum, is what we refer to as serial correlation. And in this particular example of a divergent trend trader, we are looking for positive serial correlation. Now, this difference to negative serial correlation, um, negative serial correlation is something that a convergent trader or a mean reverting trader is looking for. Now, what that means is that a a negative serial correlation means that a high is followed by a low, is followed by a high, is followed by a low. You can see that it oscillates. That is the, the symptom of convergence associated with negative correlation. Then there is positive correlation where a high is followed by a high, and another high, and a future high, and a future high. There is a directional persistence in the same trajectory, as well as a low is followed by another low, is followed by another low, etc. That is positive serial correlation. There is something amplifying that directional price move in the same direction, as opposed to switching direction, which is what negative serial correlation does. Now, of course, sitting in the middle between negative serial correlation and positive serial correlation is when there is no serial correlation in the data. Now, what that means is that price is independent at all times. So that is effectively dealing with a random series. And when you plot a random series of price, it does neatly fit within a normal distribution, which is no surprise as a normal distribution is a definition of an independent random price series. So when we are talking about the tail regions, we are talking about looking at this positive serial correlation, and when we're talking about a convergent series, we're looking at the peak of the distribution about an equilibrium, where we're referring to uh, this negative serial correlation. So what the difference between the convergent trader, the gambler, and the divergent trader effectively boils down to the degree or what form of serial correlation, if it exists, what form um, does it take, positive or negative, or is there no serial correlation? So um, in addition to... So a quantitative trader as opposed to a visual trader will be looking at this serial correlation. So what this is very interesting to me because... Um, I often do studies where um, I create random distributions of price series. Now, they're quite easy to create. And and what I uh, potentially will do is I will say, here is an existing price series of data. We've got the um, a 30-year price series of data. Now, what I want to do is randomly reshuffle that data to break up any correlation or clusters of correlation that exist in that data. So by By randomising that price series, I can basically um, make them less correlated. Um, So uh, the price at each interval is more independent to each other. And when I put my trend-following models on that price series, lo and behold, they fail. Um, But also I can create from scratch a randomly generated price series where I allow it the price series just to stochastically vary um, in relation to the immediate close of the prior price, how it varies to the next price, how it varies to the next price. I make them independent and I can create a random price series. Now, when I plot it uh, with the the visual graph of a random price series, visually I simply cannot tell whether it is a, a trending price series, a random price series or whatever. It has all of the, the, fun, the, the features and forms um, that we normally associate with data that we assume is non-random. Now, what this tells me is that in these efficient markets, um, this random price series or the visual form of the random price series is what tricks so many of us traders into thinking there is something of causative substance or endurance in that, that, um, that price series. But ultimately, it is random. So what I do then is I say, let's take a random price series. Now, what I do is I say, on top of that random price series, let's insert clusters of positive serial correlation in that random price series at discrete intervals ac- ac- across that, that um, price series. So what I'm doing there is I'm creating a small bias in the pri- in the random price series so that visually it still looks the same as the random price series. The only difference is taken from the origin, the random price series, and the um the price series with um, positive serial correlation in it, they diverge away from each other. Now, it's this divergence which is this momentum that we're looking for, uh, which we are targeting with our trend-following models. It's not a visual thing, because we cannot tell uh, visually uh, what it, the difference is between a correlated price series and a random price series. But there is a, a divergence in the price series itself, which allows for our systematic rules-based process to cap capitalise on On these trending conditions. So it's far less a game of visual identification and it's more a game of how do we know if we've got this degree of positive serial correlation in that price series. Now, you know, I've talked um, how I do it, um, you know, creating these random price series, but really that is another academic exercise because, you know, when I'm trading the right hand side of the chart, I'm not going to be able to statistically immediately um, uh, analyse that that prior price series to see if there's correlation in it. But what I am doing is I'm delaying my entry into that trend to wait until we get to this, um, there is a greater chance of reaching this this tail region. one of the reasons that the tail regions are so important is that we know there are clusters of positive serial correlation in tail data. In other words, that is what causes the extreme magnitude of the tails uh, on the left and right tails of the distribution. There is this, um, this momentum embaked in the price series, that is amplifying the price series in this directional way well beyond what a normal distribution implies. This, this, uh, these power laws that reside in these tails is a consequence of these clusters of serial correlation or this positive serial correlation. So whilst I can't uh, definitively tell whether um, I'm riding a, a trend which has this um, positive serial correlation in, in it, what I'm doing with my entry signal is is delaying my entry until price becomes of of sufficient material extent that there is a great chance it doesn't fit neatly within that normal distribution and there is a greater chance that it lies within those tail regions <clears throat> where we know positive serial correlation exists. So, So in other words, this
0: exercise of manipulating the data, which, of course, you could say on one side, you could say, well, that's completely irrelevant because the data is the data. The actual market data is the data. We can't manipulate that. But what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that by making doing this exercise, it has helped you kind of refine a little bit how you want your models uh, or when you want your models to enter. Um, but once that exercise is done and it's kind of proven you know the the point you want uh, to 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 use this is not an exercise you need to do again and again i no, imagine no. uh yeah yeah exactly yeah. because i think this is one thing rich where i think that um i, I there was a twitter comment this week that i commented on there was someone who wrote um uh, something about uh, trend following that we are over uh, we're over um, not complicating but we are overdoing uh the 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 automation or uh, you making you know and i i didn't quite understand understand the point of how, how we're doing that because yes we do use math um because it was if it was so simple then clearly everyone would be doing it so we make it sound Easy, but it doesn't mean that it's simple. So, of course, there is some math in it, and what you've just described is some of the math you're using, so to speak, to prove a point that then can help you uh, in designing your your uh, your algo, so to speak. Um, but I but I'm also I'm also aware that we don't want to overcomplicate. I mean, there is this fine balance where we we, we definitely don't want to overcomplicate um, matters too much, um, but I also think we have to be um, transparent and say there is a reason why we have, you know, highly educated uh, and experienced researchers uh, like yourself, Rich, and, and of course, people who work for these uh, trend-following firms who spend a lot of time thinking about small tweaks, small details that actually may make a a, a decent um, uh, enhancement uh, if you can get it right. Um, I mean, I'm sure that 90% of the, or, or maybe 95% of the stuff they, they work on uh, will be dismissed um, because it, it just turns out not to be robust enough, but... Let's leave the topics for today like that. Um, this was great rich as always um, and hopefully it's given people something to think about in terms of of uh, trends and and how they may form and uh, and the fact that there are many ways uh, of looking at it and also what I really like about the fact because I've seen some of your data and that is of course you're absolutely right. the naked eye you really can't tell the difference whether a time series is random or whether it has a bias it's very hard to tell the difference uh so uh, the devil is definitely in the detail sometimes and uh and so um so that that i appreciate a lot um and of course Everyone listening to our conversation today, if you love these conversations, then please do go and to uh, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you listen to these conversations and leave a rating and review, um, that would be great. Which reminds me actually about a uh, rating I got this week. Uh, it's rare we get it, but we did get a, a low rating from someone, I have no idea who it is, uh, who basically said... Uh, It's great that you talk about um, how wonderful trend following is, but can't just tell us how. Um, And I don't think that that the person who left that rating has actually listened carefully, because I do think we spend quite a lot of time, and not least by you, Rich, being very transparent as to how we do this. But this is not a podcast that's going to just give you a, a cheat sheet and say, oh yeah, this is... This is uh, the five things you need to put into uh, uh, to your system and then you're off to the races. Because if we did that, and some people do that, some people want to make it sound like, oh, you can just uh, get it off the shelf or you can just get it from the internet and then you're the, the trend follower. That's just not how it works in reality. Um, but hopefully these conversations will help people, um, encourage people to to uh, either do it themselves, do the work. This is about doing the work. You have to, you can't just rely on other people to do the work or and maybe to the listener who left that rating of just give me the how well the how is then go and invest with a trade with an experienced manager that is the how that's the easiest way you can do um because there are plenty of good funds out there um, so that is, of course, one way to to solve that, uh, I would say. Anyways, uh, next week, uh, we have a fun conversation, I think, a little bit out of the uh, usual format, because we are going to be joined by Andrew Beer, or I'm going to be joined by Andrew Beer, for uh, to discuss trend replication, uh, a topic that has come up a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, there's always uh, there's already questions that have come in, but I would like some more to choose from. Uh, so do send your questions uh, to info at top on plot.com. I'll try and have a uh, meaningful conversation with Andrew. Uh, of course, I have my own um, um, questions uh, and uh, concerns. Um, but I think it'll be a fun conversation. Andrew is uh, great at explaining these things. So um, so yes, next week will be a little bit different, uh, but hopefully lots of fun uh, as well. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.